Well, good morning, Southwinds. It's always so great to, to see you. Uh, before we get busy studying God's word together, I just wanna add to what's already been said um, and encourage you to make this coming 75th anniversary celebration a real priority for yourself as you uh, received this card that uh, has kind of a schedule of a lot of the things, not everything, but a lot of the things that are gonna be happening during the next 10 weeks. I just hope that you'll kind of mark things down, uh, get yourself ready, make preparation, just make it a real priority. We're gonna be celebrating uh, by looking back at some of the history and seeing some of the great things that God has done. We're gonna be celebrating by talking about some of the great things, amazing things that God is doing right now here in our midst as a, a faith family. And we're gonna also be dreaming together uh, some about what God is going to do uh, in the future. And so I, I just uh, am excited about it. I hope you're getting excited about it. I just pray that you will make that a priority for yourself and I will, I will see you next week, amen? Amen. Uh, one more thing before we get started. Uh, some of you knew this was coming. If you didn't, oh well. Uh, this uh, last Monday on Labor Day, uh, Dana and I welcomed uh, the arrival of our fifth grandchild. And uh, her name is Lucy. And uh, she is there uh, with her big sister, Lily. Uh, they're down in Southern California. We, we got to uh, see her when she was just about six hours old, which was really, really cool. And I just have to tell you, as an objective observer, she's perfect. Um, <laughs> she's perfect, uh, and uh, she's just amazing. It's just a, a, such a blessing. Last thing I do want to say about her is I love Lucy. So... <laughs> You're going to probably hear that more than one time in the future. Well, uh, we are in the book of Titus today. We're wrapping up our study of Titus today. We're in chapter three. And uh, this study we have called uh, The Good Life. The Good Life. And you want to get your Bibles open to Titus 3, verses 1 through 15. We're going to be working our way through this third chapter uh, this morning, verse uh, by verse. And what we're going to see is that Titus 3 is all about our mission and the good life. Now, we have been saying each week of this series that God wants us to live the good life. That's what he created us for. That's why he sent Jesus, his son, our savior, to die, to give us the truly good life. But this phrase, the good life, it may confuse us because the way God and our culture define the good life are diametrically opposed to one another. See, our culture, as you've been hearing me say, our culture says the good life is all about getting good things for ourselves. But God says the good life is about living the life, living in the reality that God created us to live in, uh, living in alignment with that reality, which means following his will, obeying his commands, living first for him and then for other people. That's the good life. The good life is not about getting. The good life is always about giving, about giving ourselves to God and then to other people. And, and if you've been reading the book, maybe you've noticed that all through Titus, Paul is using over and over again this word good, good. In uh, chapter one, verse eight, he talks about one who loves what is Good. We're to be people who love the good. In, in chapter two, verse three, he tells uh, Titus that, that, that people are to teach what is good. In chapter two, verse seven, he says, and everything set them an example by doing what is good, living out the good. Chapter two, verse 14, uh, he's talking about a people who are his very own. They're eager to do what is good. And then today we're going to see, continuing on, chapter three, verse one, uh, that we are to be ready to do whatever is good. And then in verse eight, we are to devote ourselves to doing what is good. And then finally in verse 14, to learn to devote ourselves to doing what is good. And you begin to see this and you see that he's calling us, all of us, to live the good life. And so as we get started today on our final message in this series, I wanna ask you, how would you assess where you are in terms of living the good life, living it out the way God defines it? How would you assess that? How would you know? Now, 
there are probably a number of ways that we could, could evaluate that, but today we're going to see a, a metric for living out the good life that may surprise you. Paul, he tells Titus in chapter three that how Christ's followers respond to authority in their lives, it reveals a lot about which version of the good life that they are chasing. How you respond to authority in your life reveals a lot about which version of the good life that you are chasing. Is it God's version or is it the world's version? Now, you remember that Paul, he wrote this letter to Titus because uh, there were Christ followers in Crete that needed correction. They have gotten off mission. They were uh, out of alignment with what God had for them. They had allowed the culture to kind of infiltrate the church. They were getting assimilated to it, and they were allowing the culture to overshadow the mission they were living for themselves. They were not pursuing the good life of, of doing good to others. And so in, in Titus 3... Uh, Paul points out to Titus that they had gotten off track in the way they were responding to people who had authority in their lives. And so I'm gonna show you two major truths, and you've already seen that if you have the app open and you're using the message notes there, but two major truths that Paul is telling us, and I'll let you know ahead of time so that your hearts will not be troubled. (laughs) We're gonna spend the vast majority, about three-fourths of our time in the first point. I know that some of you will be worried a a few minutes from now if I don't let you know uh, about that. So here's the first thing. You can write this down however you're taking notes. Uh, Paul is telling us we need to stay focused on the mission. He he tells us uh, about our mission and the good life. We, We need to stay focused on the mission. And we'll begin in verse one where Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Whatever is good. And so, as I said, the churches in Crete had gotten off mission. And and Paul says here, part of how you get back on mission is by changing your response to authorities. And he uses two words. He talks about rulers and he talks about authorities. And in doing this, he is communicating kind of an overarching way in which we as Christ followers should respond. It's not just political rulers. It's really all the authorities in our lives. And this may surprise you. As Americans, we don't like stuff like this, do we? Right? We, we don't like to talk about authority. We especially don't like to be told that we need to submit to authority. Right? How many of you agree with me? Let's be honest. Let's get you going here. I want to make sure you're with me. You agree that as Americans, we really don't like this very much. Would you be willing to raise your hands and say, no, that's not really what I like? This is the case in, in today. It was the case back in Crete. But Paul says it's important. And we're going to find out why. So first of all, who is an authority? And I just wanted to find it as someone who can legitimately make demands on your life. So who would that be for you? If you were to make a list, who would be on that list? Now, obviously, you should put at the top of your list God. That's where your list begins because God is God and you are not, amen? God is God, therefore, he's the number one authority in the universe. That means he should be the number one authority in our lives. But if you make this list and do what Paul is talking about, your list is going to include political leaders, you know, starting maybe with the president, moving down to the governor and maybe some others. It's gonna include a law enforcement. It's going to include, as you get closer to your own life, your supervisor, your boss at work. If you're younger, maybe a teacher. If you're living at home, your your parents. See, here's the thing. We all have a list. Everybody has a list. And it doesn't matter how they acquired that authority. If they are in a position where they can make legitimate demands of you, then they're an authority for you. And Paul says to you, be subject to them, be obedient. So what does that mean, practically? Well, let's define it like this. You you put their demands above your desires, before your desires. Again, God is number one, and if you're already going there, our ultimate obedience is to God, and so if these authorities make demands on your life that conflict with God's commands, well, we obey God, right? 
But that's really not what Paul is addressing here, and you kind of probably know that. Paul is talking about those places in our lives where the demands that authorities in our lives may kind of rub up against what we want to do. So we've got some teenagers in here, some children in here. So if your, your mom tells you to turn off the Xbox and go do your homework, you turn off the Xbox and you do your homework. If you're a little bit older and you have a job, if your boss tells you, I want you to work on this project and it's not the other project that you like a whole lot more that you would rather be doing than you do what your boss tells you to do. That's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. But, but maybe you're asking why. Why do we do this? What's the big deal about this? Why in the world does this have anything to do with the good life? Well, I want you to look at verse one again. And I, I wanna kind of flesh out the translation a little bit for you. Paul writes this, and I've added some words in. You'll see in brackets. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient so that you can be ready to do whatever is good. Now, I added those words, as you can see. And the reason is that in the original Greek text, there's a word there that that doesn't really come across uh, super well in English. It's a Greek word that's pronounced pros. We get words like prosecute uh, from this. And and this means, of course, prosecute means you bring an accusation towards someone or a charge uh, towards someone. And, and, And here, pros has this idea of towards and uh, kind of uh, metaphorically, the idea means for the purpose of or for this reason of so that. And that tells us the reason is, the reason we're submissive, the reason we're obedient is so that we can be ready to do whatever is good. To put it another way, we submit to the authorities in our lives so that we can stay focused on the mission that God has given us. See, as followers of Christ, What's our mission? Well, our mission fundamentally is to advance the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we, we saw a couple of weeks ago, maybe remember that, that uh, we are to uh, make the gospel attractive. Some of your translations says, say we are to adorn the gospel. And what Paul is telling us is when we do good to other people, we make the gospel attractive. And so what Paul basically is saying is, I want you to focus on doing good so that you can carry out, accomplish, fulfill your mission. You stay focused on the mission. And and here's the deal. If if, if you aren't doing what Paul says here, it ends up like this. It's kind of hard to be on mission with your friends if you're a teenager It's kind of hard to be on mission with your friends when you're grounded because you wouldn't turn the Xbox off like your mother said. If you're an adult, it's kind of hard to be on mission at work when you get fired because you just wouldn't do what your boss told you to do. And just to take it back to Crete, you know, if you lived in the Roman Empire where any kind of resistance to like officials, government officials, empire officials typically was met with execution, it's kind of hard to be on mission when you're dead. You see what Paul's driving at? Paul, Paul is telling us that we are to be people who do good in the culture in which we live so that we can stay focused on the mission, so that doors get open for us to tell others the good news. And Paul's command is hard because, I mean, how many of us, how many of you, here's a chance to raise your hands again if you're looking for that, how many of you have an authority in your life and you don't really like to do what they say all the time and the reason is because they're kind of a jerk or there's something wrong with them, okay? How many of you have that in your life? Some of you aren't raising your hand because they're like sitting next to you maybe, I don't. (laughs) But it's hard. And, and, and then Paul really, even though that's hard, he kind of ratchets it up in the next verse. Verse two, he says, remind the people, this is coming from verse one, but it applies to both of these verses. Remind the people, because we need to be reminded. He says, remind the people to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. And so he's telling us here, it's more than just being subject in our actions. It also includes our attitudes. So we're also to have good attitudes in how we do that if we're gonna stay focused on the mission. The Greek word translated slander is 
pronounced blasphemeo, and we get our word blaspheme from it. And when that word is used about people, it means that we demean and we denigrate and we malign. We, we tear people down with our words. Paul says, don't do that. Uh, the, the, the word peaceable, uh, that means the opposite of quarrelsome. And, and there are some of you here, and you know who you are, and so does the person sitting next to you. You think your spiritual gift is arguing, right? But it's not. <laughs> Paul says don't. Then considerate and gentle are very closely related. I'm not gonna explain those words because they mean exactly what, what they sound like. Uh, both words, by the way, have this idea built into the, the word in Greek of humility. Humility is part of both of these. So we have humble attitudes. And Paul is just saying, it, it's more than just how you act. It's also your attitude. And you may ask again, why? I mean, why does it matter? Like if I turn the Xbox off and then I go to my room and I text my friends about what idiots my parents are. Why does that matter? Why does it matter if I do what my boss told me to do and while I'm doing it, it also happened, just happened to mention to my friends that my boss is an idiot and a jerk. Here's why it matters. Our attitude towards authority models for others how we want them to respond to God. And I want you to stop and I want you to let that kind of sink in. I want you to think about that. See, why, why is our world so messed up? Why is the world so messed up? Why do we look around and we see so much evil, so, so much pain and suffering and brokenness? And the answer, you know it like you're in church, right? You already know what I'm gonna say. The answer is because we as humans have rebelled against God's authority. We have told God, we don't wanna listen to you. We're not gonna submit to you. We're gonna call our own shots. And we did that from the very beginning. Why? Because we believed the lie that that was the way to the good life. Doing our own thing. But that's not where it took us, is it? See, rebelling against God and his authority took us into the bad life. Rebelling broke the world. Rebelling is the cause of everything bad everything bad in this world. But the good news is, the gospel is that God set, keeps on loving us, that even while we were his enemies, rebels against him, he loves us so much that he sends his only son, Jesus, to die, to pay for our rebellion. Do you know that rebellion always has a price? It always has a price. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You say, well, why is that the case? Well, just think about it. Think about it. God is the source of life. So if we cut ourselves off from the source of life, what's gonna happen? Well, what's gonna happen is we're gonna die. God is light. And if we run away from the light, where do we end up? We end up in, in darkness, right? See, this is what we get naturally when we reject God. But again, the gospel says that God loves us so much, he sent his son to pay the price with his own life. Jesus died, Jesus paid for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He now today lives on high, ruling and reigning forevermore, and he keeps on, keeps on offering us forgiveness and salvation and a door into the good life. And that happens when we follow him. But again, understand that following Jesus means, by definition, submitting to Jesus. We go where he goes. We do what he says, right? We accept his authority of, over our lives. And he tells us, when he tells us to do good, He's telling us to do good because when we do good, we help people see the gospel. When we tell them, if they will give their lives to God by submitting to Jesus and calling him, making him Lord of their lives, submitting to his authority, we are helping them discover the only life that is truly good. And, and our obedience to the authorities in our life helps make that connection. But if then on the other hand, we, we tell people they, they need to submit to God while we live our lives in rebellion and 
in our actions and rebellion and our attitudes against the authorities in our lives. Well, there's a disconnect. They see it. We're not modeling something that will set the stage for them to respond to God's authority in the way that we long for them to. And so here's a really, really important question. If you're a follower of Jesus, will you ask yourself this morning, Am I modeling in my life an attitude toward earthly authority that that really helps set the stage for people to respond to God's authority? See, our our attitude towards authority, it really does model for others how we want them to respond to God. That's the reason Paul is saying what he's saying. I've been pointing out all through this book that Paul tells us to do good things and Paul tells us to live certain ways because of the gospel, because of the gospel, because of the gospel, so that people will not malign the word of God. He's been saying this over and over and over again and the reason he does this is we have a hard time with it. We all struggle with this. And we do because our world is fallen and sinful and and that means that every authority is imperfect at best. And many authorities are a lot worse than that. You know, I was thinking one, one way that we can do, one thing that we can do to help us respond to imperfect authority is really simple. I'm gonna put it on the screen. It's just talk about them less. You ever thought about that? Just don't talk about them so much. Don't, don't talk about your boss or supervisor as much as you do. You know, then if we just make this really public when it comes to political leaders, I think a, a lot of Christ's followers fail to model how we want others to respond to God. Would you agree with me on that? Say amen if you do. Yeah, we don't do a real good job of that. And social media has just pretty much made us all worse at this, right? It's made it very easy for us not to just criticize, but also to slandering. And I wanna challenge you this morning with this question. I really want you to hear it and receive it and think about it. I just, here's what I want you to say for those of you on social media, and it's this. Is your commentary, your commentary on every political or policy decision, is it necessary to the continued existence of our nation and our world? I am serious about this. Why, why do we think we have to say something about everything? See, if you think it's important that you say something, and sometimes it is, then you need to make sure that you do it in a way that does not violate the word of God. What Paul says here in verse two. Now, some of you right now are thinking about other people who are on the other side of the political aisle from you. And I just want to remind you, they're thinking about you too. This is, a, this is a, a left and a right issue, okay? It cuts both ways. I don't think any side in our cultural climate is really you know, doing this the way God calls us to do. And here's the thing that you need to be understanding. This kind of mentality that we develop, it only happens when we see um, You know, what Paul is saying, when we see our mission as more important than our desires, as more important than our opinions and and our preferences, we need to get back to the mission. We need to be reminded to say, focus on it and, and, and to remember that obeying God by submitting to the authorities God has placed in our lives helps lead to the good life. Now, the next section in this chapter is, is verses three through seven. And Paul here, he moves into grounding this call that he's just been giving. He, he grounds it in the gospel itself. He makes it real clear. He moves from what he's just told them and he's gonna move into a discussion of the gospel. And, and what he's essentially saying in these verses is that the people who have been changed by the gospel must put the gospel on display. See, if God has changed your life, can anybody see? Or are you putting it on display? And Paul starts in verse three by, by describing what life is like when we don't live in submission to authority. And he says, that's the way all of us once were. This verse really is telling us the same thing as a familiar verse in Romans 3, Romans three twenty three: for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Paul writes in, in uh, 
Titus 3, 3, he says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Notice he says at one time, he's saying, that's the way we used to be. That's how we all used to live. He says, we were foolish and disobedient. Now, foolish here doesn't mean stupid, okay? In the Bible, it rarely has that meaning. It rarely means stupid. It's foolish because they were ignoring and denying self-evident truths about God. They were suppressing the truth. Why? Well, when you're living like this, you don't know about what you don't wanna know about, right? You don't know there is a God because you don't wanna know there is a God because then you'd have to obey him and so you don't know there is a God. The, the famous atheist and scientist uh, Stephen Hawking once said, Christianity is for people who are afraid of the dark. And a theologian responded to him and said, atheism is for people who are afraid of the light. What kind of light? Well, the light of God that in his holiness reveals all of our darkness, our sin, all of our moral failings. And Paul is saying here, all of us have been there. We've all been in sin. And that sin, Paul says, always leads to what's next, which is slavery. He says, we become enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And don't we see this working itself out every day in our culture? We, we live in a culture, and I think a lot of us don't even realize that we live in a culture that is all about entertainment and, and comfort and pleasure to a degree rarely has occurred in human history. And it's just there all the time. Um, I was kind of reminded about something this, this week that I think connects into this, and maybe you won't understand it at first, but I think as you think about it a moment, you will. The, the whole opioid epidemic that has been going across our nation, hurting so many people, it's more than just this, but some of it is this. This is part of it. And listen to this statistic. The United States comprises about 5% of the world's population. Uh, we use 80% of the world's painkillers. So I have a question. Are we in that much more pain than the rest of the world? Uh, we have become enslaved to our desires to always be experiencing comfort and, and pleasure in so many ways. I recently bought a, a best-selling book. Haven't read it yet. I've looked at it a little bit. But it's called Dopamine Nation. And uh, it's a secular book. What it talks about is, is how all of our overabundance, how we have so much and we indulge ourselves so often that we have become enslaved to it. And that's the kind of thing Paul's talking about, all this foolish disobedience that enslaves us. And he, said, he goes on to say, when you get trapped in this, it destroys relationships. He, he says, we live in malice and envy and hatred and I, I kind of want to sum this up like this. Doing your own thing never leads to the good life. It always takes you to the bad life. Do you agree with that? How many times do you find yourself persuaded? I, I, I think this time I'm going to do my own thing. You need to be reminded doing your own thing <laughs> It never leads to the good life. It always, it always leads to the bad life. And that, that's the kind of thing that, that Paul is, is talking about. Doing your own thing, it just takes us to all the problems in the world that make us look around and we look at these problems and, and we see what's wrong with the world. Did anybody else ask that question a couple days ago when you heard about what happened in San Carlos? What is wrong with the world that on a street, in a suburb, of the Bay Area, someone beheads another person. And Paul's answer to that question, what's wrong with the world, would be look in the mirror. We are what's wrong with the world. It's all of us. It's, it's our sin. He, 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 he's telling us this because of what's coming next, starting in verse four. He says, that's why we need a savior. That's why we need the gospel. And we cannot stay focused on 
the mission if we do not understand the gospel and, and why we need it. So that's why he goes where he goes in verses four to seven. And I just wanna tell you before we look at these verses that these are some of the most beautiful, most profound uh, words in all the Bible. I, I already encouraged you um, earlier in this series to memorize Titus 2, 11 to 14. Um, I, I hope you've been working on that. I also today want to encourage you, and you just keep working on it after we finish this, to, to memorize Titus 3, 4 through 7. Some scholars believe this is the most profound statement of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. Incredible words. Paul, uh, Paul, Paul says this, starts out and says, but when the kindness, the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. And it wasn't because we were better than the other people. It wasn't because we did anything to deserve it. He says, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his, what, say it out loud. Mercy, mercy. See, Paul has been talking about how we stay on mission and experience the good life, specifically in how we respond to authority. And I want you to keep this in mind. He doesn't say this after what he's just said for an accident. This doesn't just get thrown in here. He is saying, I want you to think about this. What did we deserve from God? And the answer is we deserve condemnation and punishment and judgment because we did not submit to God's authority. We sinned and rebelled against him and, and God could have justly left us in the darkness, left us in the death that we had chosen. It's just the natural consequence of our rebellion, but that is not what God did. God sent Jesus. His kindness and his love appeared and in Jesus, God saved us. And Paul is making the point so clearly here that our salvation had nothing to do with anything good we had done. It was all about God's mercy. And mercy means that you don't give someone what they deserve. Instead, you give them something better. And that's what God did. He carried out justice for our sins on his son Jesus, but he did it so we could be saved. We deserve justice, but God gave us kindness and love and, and mercy. And, and in the context of chapter three, Paul is saying, maybe you think the authorities in your life don't deserve your submission, your obedience. You need to remember, Paul says, that you never have and you never will deserve the kindness and the love and the mercy of God. And so Paul is saying, I'm not calling you to be submissive and obedient and respectful because they deserve it. He says, but if you really wanna talk about what you deserve, well, <laughs> we'll talk about it. See, Paul is showing us how we should do good to others, how we should stay focused on the mission. Why? Because of the gospel, because of God's grace, because of God's kindness and love and mercy. And verse three is the way we used to live, but he says there's a new way, a better way to live. Second part of verse five through verse seven, it says, again, he saved us. It's repeated a second time. It's so important. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And Paul's talking about two things that are so important. He's talking about salvation and transformation. He's talking about what God did for us, that salvation. He's also talking about what God is doing in us, how he's transforming us and turning us into someone new. So Paul says, says that God saved us from our sins and that he justified us. And this big word justification, it, it means that we are made right with God. If you want a way to remember it, someone kind of came up with this. Uh, it, is, it means just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justification means, justified. And Paul is, is talking about washing and cleansing. And he says all of us need this, this washing and this cleansing, this rebirth. And this, this renewal, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I think even people who don't know God, even people who deny the truth of what we're talking about, they sense this in their own lives. A few years ago, psychologists 
studied this issue. There was a New York Times article that reported on a paper published in the Journal of Science. And uh, psychologists did this test where they, they asked people to think of some things that they had done. And they asked them to think of ethical things they had done, like things they were proud of, and then unethical things they had done, like things they were ashamed of. And so they, 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 they asked them to think about these things separately. And then they would give them these words that had some missing letters, and they asked them to fill the words in. So here's how it went. Um, they, they asked them to think of ethical things, and then they gave them this word. It's a four-letter word, and it's, it was shown to them like this, W space space H. And over 70% of the people, when they were thinking about ethical things, they filled it out, wish. They gave them another word, and this word a little bit longer was S-H space space, E-R. The people who, who thought of ethical things filled it in with words like shaker, stuff like that. Then they asked them to think of unethical things that they had done. Something bad, something you were not proud of, maybe ashamed of. They gave them the same words. They gave them the same blanks. Over two-thirds of the people thinking of unethical things filled in words like wash. S-H, blank, blank, E-R, they filled it in shower, not shaker. Now, the psychologists looked at this and they said, and your mom's probably gonna like this, this means we should encourage people to be cleaner. So they should clean their rooms, they should live in cleaner homes, and then they'll be better people. And most of you, because I heard you laugh, you understand that's probably pretty ridiculous. I think it's more likely that the Bible story of who we are is the true story and we're seeing it here that we all know that we all need cleansing and forgiveness. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. We we trust in Jesus. We receive him as Lord and Savior. When that happens, our, our sins are forgiven. They're washed away. The Holy Spirit cleanses us and he makes us new and then he comes into our lives when we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit does, and he, he begins changing us from the inside out. He starts transforming us into the people God created us to be, people not driven by selfish desires anymore, people who are free to begin living the good life. We're restored, that's what renewal means. We're restored back to what God always intended us to be. And, and then he says he does this for the purpose of, of, of saving and justifying us so that we might become heirs. Now, an heir is someone who inherits from their parents. Why? Because they are their parents' children. In other words, he says the Holy Spirit is turning us into sons and daughters of God who, who, who live like God, who actually display the family likeness, who are actually becoming the people God always designed us to be. So we're not just saved. We're, we're, we're transformed. Now, Here's a very powerful truth. We, we still live in a sinful, broken world. We, we still struggle with sin, and far too often we're still driven by selfishness. But Paul is saying that's not who you are anymore. He's saying if you're a Christ follower, you are not that person anymore. And you may still struggle with all this stuff Paul's talking about, but he says now selfishness does not have to be the loudest voice in your life. You do not have to listen to that anymore because you are not a slave to that anymore. You are a son. You are a daughter of God, an heir. And he's asking us a very important question inside of this. It's, if you're no longer a slave to selfishness, why do you still obey it and your attitudes toward earthly authority? Why are you still obeying it in your, your actions toward those who have authority over you in your life? Why, why isn't son, daughter of God, why isn't your life about the good life? You know, before we had faith in Jesus, before we were set free from our sin, before we were transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we were so used to listening to that voice of, of selfishness that sometimes now it's hard, it's hard to recognize that we do not have to listen to that voice anymore. It's like, now it should be like, oh, I hear it, I, I know it's there, but I don't have to obey it, I don't have to do it. I can live a different way because God has saved me. God has washed me. 
I've been born again. I've been made new. The Holy Spirit is in me. I'm an heir. I have the hope of eternal life. That's where I'm headed, so that's how I'm gonna live. Amen? That's what God is, is telling us through Paul. Stay focused on the mission of living and sharing the good life. He wraps that all up in verse eight. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. You ought to uh, focus on that word stress and think about it. Um, he says, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And Paul says, you can trust what I've been saying to you. Stay focused on the mission. Stress the things that lead to good. It's the best way to live. It leads you to the good life when you are careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. And then, number two, very quickly, avoid distractions from the mission. Now, I told you ahead of time, we're not gonna spend nearly as much time here, but notice where Paul in verse eight has told Titus to stress some things. Now, he's going to tell us we need to avoid some things, okay? There's some things we need to avoid. He says in verse nine, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these things are unprofitable and useless. And in context, why he's saying this is you avoid these things because they take you off the mission. They're distractions to the mission. And why do these distractions come? I'll tell you why. Because Satan loves to distract us and derail us and get us off from alignment with our mission. And he does that through conflict. He does that through disunity. See, Paul has been saying there are some things that are excellent. They're profitable. But there are also some things that are unprofitable and they're useless. Ask yourself, And I'm not even gonna get specific. I'll let you make the application. Where in my life am I spending my time and my energy, my focus on things that are, quite honestly, I know it, unprofitable and useless? Avoid them. Paul says avoid foolish controversies. Now, he doesn't say avoid controversy. Sometimes we need to have a a, a conflict on something because it's necessary to call out false doctrine or it's necessary to stand up against an ungodly leader in the church that goes rogue. Paul's not saying don't speak up. He's saying stay away from the foolish controversies. The Good News Bible says avoid stupid arguments. The message says, avoid mindless, pointless quarreling. See, we, we need to avoid certain things. Just don't go there. It just, it just leads to arguments, right? Second, avoid genealogies. Now, you read this and you're kind of scratching your head like, what's this about? Um, it does not mean that you don't need to know your ancestry. It does not mean that you gotta cancel your subscription to Ancestry.com or that you sinned when you got paid the money for that test where you had to spit in the tube and you got your DNA thing back, Right? That's not what he's talking about here. I mean, just think about it. The Bible has genealogies, right? Paul's not saying don't study the Bible's genealogies. Now, the commentators have lots of opinions here, which means nobody really knows exactly what Paul is referring to. Uh, The two most likely options were that since the churches uh, had Gentiles as well as Jews, and since the scriptures that they mostly had were Old Testament Jewish scriptures, there were probably some Gentiles who were just feverishly working on their genealogies to find that they had some Jewish heritage so they could prove they were, they were worthy. They weren't second-class citizens of God's kingdom. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Some people maybe uh, were using genealogies to kind of come up with some crazy mystical interpretations of what had happened in the past and use that to prove some point in the present. Whatever it was, these genealogies were distracting people from the mission, and Paul says, avoid them. Third, avoid arguments and quarrels about the law. Now, we know a little more about this. These churches on Crete were new faith communities. There were Jews, there were Gentiles together coming as one body. There were a lot of things they were all trying to figure out about how the Old Testament law, which was which a Jewish, the Mosaic law, how it applied to today. And we know from the New Testament, there were people back then where they had arguments about circumcision. Now, I'll just tell you, I've been a pastor for 30 years, 35 years, so far to this date, um, in my ministry, that's not been a problem. Um, we're not arguing about that one anymore. But they did back then. They also had argument about food that had been sacrificed to idols. 
They had arguments about words, like, you know, certain words that were obsessing and they were going down rabbit holes, they were chasing squirrels, whatever, getting distracted from the main thing. And some people still do that today. You could kind of sum this all up. Don't major on the minors. Stay focused on the mission. Now, again, we have different issues today. Currently, um, one of those, many churches are getting distracted by politics. And I want you to know, I say that as someone who is personally deeply interested in politics, someone who, who reads a great deal all the time, pretty much every day about the issues of the day. I've been doing this for, for decades now, and I know these issues matter. They matter, many of them, deeply Our culture has rejected God and his plan to give us the good life. Our culture has adopted all all kinds of destructive ideologies that have already damaged and will continue to damage countless thousands and thousands of people in thousands of ways. And I will tell you, quite honestly, I have a lot of opinions about these things. and, And I hold my opinions humbly, but with great accuracy. I I I have opinions, I do. And I think I'm right. But these things are not the gospel. And so I I try to hold my opinions where I think I'm correct in humility and hold them kind of loosely, willing to be corrected. They are not the gospel. My opinions aren't the gospel and neither are yours. We must not make these things the main thing. We must never forget that the kingdom of God, and this is where I think a lot of us in America get derailed. The kingdom of God does not depend on us, it does not depend on our nation, it does not depend on our nation's culture. This whole country may just get flushed down the whatever. God's kingdom will remain, God's kingdom will keep going. And so sometimes, maybe some of us need to lighten up a little bit about this. And when I say lighten up, what I really mean is trust God. Trust God. So don't get sidetracked. Sometimes uh, in church, people get sidetracked by certain aspects of church life, whether it's worship, you know, how, uh, how, what kind of songs we sing or like how loudly we, 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 we play the music, stuff like that. Uh, it may be a certain program in the life of a church. And the point here is that good things can be a distraction to the mission if we get them out of balance. Paul says, avoid, avoid, avoid. And then he says in verses 10 and 11, sometimes certain people are the distraction. He says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And there are always in the church some people who for some reason, they end up convinced that their opinions about the issues they care most deeply about are everything. And they think that everything in the church should revolve around their opinions and Sometimes people like this become divisive. And they don't listen to what Paul says in verse nine. They just keep hammering away at their issue. And Paul says to Titus, as a leader, you have to deal with them. The mission is too important. So he says, warn them once, and then warn them twice if you need to. And after that, you avoid these people. In other words, don't let certain people become a distraction to the mission. Now, you go through a process. They are people that God loves, and they're part of our family, and so we care about them. We, we, we work through stuff. We have a process, but, but, you know, if this is you, we want you here, but don't be divisive. Don't be divisive. At some point, the mission has to take precedence over your opinions. The unity and the fellowship and the peace and the harmony of Jesus' church is matter so much more. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we have an enemy, and his name is Satan. And he would love to implode what God has been doing here at Southwinds. He would love to bring to a halt a work that has seen thousands of people come to faith over the last 75 years. He would love to see us here at Southwinds get so focused on, on foolish controversies that we, we quit loving, hurting people. We, we quit serving our communities. He hates God's kingdom and he hates how the kingdom expresses itself here. He's our enemy. We must not listen to him. We must not let him in. I, I was interesting. I was just thinking about this actually this morning. 
Uh, all of you know today is 9-11, which means 21 years ago, 9-11 happened. And I don't need to explain that, but I, I was reminded that one of the things, if you were you know, old enough, you'll remember this, right? One of the things that happened in the wake of 9-11 was we set a lot of our differences aside, right? And we came together and we united. Why? Because we had a greater enemy. We had a, had a mission that, that mattered we set aside the distractions to focus on, uh, on defeating the enemy. So that's what Paul is saying. Stay focused on the mission. Avoid distractions. Now he ends the letter with some housekeeping for the most part. He, he says in verses 12 and 13, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything that that they, they need. And Paul is just saying, I need you, Titus. And he's sending some people, Paul is, to help uh, carry on the mission while Titus is not there. And they're gonna do what Titus has been doing. And then in verses 14 and 15, Paul wraps it up by saying, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. There it is again. Why? In order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. He says, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now he, he ends this letter the way he usually does. He, he talks about grace. He sends greetings. But before he does that, in verse 14, he says, and he's really summarizing this entire letter, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. I wanna encourage you, circle or underline the phrase must learn. And the last thing I wanna leave you with is this. We have to learn to devote ourselves to doing what is good. It is not our natural inclination. We naturally prefer our own agendas, doing good for me. It's not natural to seek the good of others to provide for their urgent needs. We only do it by the power of God. We only do it by the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And so we learn and then we do. We devote ourselves to doing what is good. And when we do this, Southwinds, when we do this, then and only then will we discover the good life. This is God's word for us today. It's about our mission. It's about the good life. Will you hear it? Will you take it in? And then will you live it out? That's the challenge for us today. I'm gonna ask you if you'll bow your heads. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And as our ushers are coming forward uh, with the elements, I just want us to pray. Father God, thank you for your word. We ask you to prepare our hearts now to celebrate at your table the supper that you provided for us. We pray that you would use this time for us to worship you and to remember all the good things you have done for us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Everybody says.